0: On the first page of his 1938 novel Scoop, Evelyn Waugh writes that his main protagonist goes to visit an advisor on a biting cold morning in mid-June. On Friday morning, when I started to write this, I knew just what he meant, didn't you? It's a little better today, just chilly. We came to the end of our series on 2 Corinthians last week and as someone who hasn't contributed to speaking on that wonderful letter at all, I am so grateful to the array of people who did. I love it when I hear things I didn't previously know, or am encouraged to view things from an angle I hadn't previously considered. I've appreciated the insights I've been shown, and, that the, and the learning which has given rise to this teaching has been worn so lightly by all preaching. I've loved the honesty and the vulnerability which have been so amply demonstrated by all who spoke. When Toby and I first came up to St. Andrew's from London nearly 12 years ago, Toby was sent a prophetic encouragement by our friend and former pastor Rick Williams. In his card he wrote that he felt the Lord was asking us to work at combining theology with praxis. In other words, That we should diligently study Scripture and then try to teach how what we learn intellectually from the Bible applies to our everyday life as followers of Jesus. How do we live by it? How does what we know from the theory of the written word become the innate practice of our lives? This combination of theory and praxis, I believe, has been embraced by every person who has spoken on 2 Corinthians and beyond, and I really bless you for it. Thank you. Today, I have a free topic. I can talk about whatever I like. I resisted the temptation to stand here today and to tell you that the Lord had led me to talk on a topic about which we hear a huge amount, but about which... Along with everyone else, we understand almost nothing, the EU referendum. (laughs) But that would have been a lie because the Lord said no such thing. Instead, I want to talk about a particular verse which, for me, has always summed up the joyous challenge of the Christian life. It is Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? I want to muse this morning rather than seek to teach. More of an Isaiah, come let us reason together than a Matthew sermon. It's a favorite verse because it streamlines and simplifies the business of living life with God in a way which I can understand. That is not to say that putting it into practice is easy. Living life as a follower of Jesus is never easy. It is always challenging. But this verse, at least, lays down some fairly clear-cut guidelines. In the last year, Toby has spoken on the first few verses of Micah, chapter 6, twice at weddings, most recently at the wedding of John Ho and Annie Hollands, two of our former much-loved students, just two weeks ago. To my mind, there is no better way to start married life as Christians than to have this verse tattooed on your brain, as it were. He also talked on it early last August here at the Kingdom Vineyard, and I really commend that talk to you. It's on the Kingdom Vineyard website. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel, But I do feel that the implications of this verse merit revisiting, especially after our close consideration of the theme of reconciliation in 2 Corinthians and the call to dig deeper and to grasp more fully how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is for each of us, as Paul puts it in his letter to the Ephesians. In his talk last year, Toby drew attention to the fact that it is clearer in older translations of the Bible, such as the King James' version, when individuals are being addressed, thou, and when groups of people are being addressed, ye. He pointed out that ye, the plural version, outnumbers thou, the singular version, by two to one in the New Testament. We therefore need, very practically and deliberately, to consider both what this verse in Micah means to each one of us, in our walks with God, of course, but also what it means to us as a community. How do we as a church community here in the Kingdom Vineyard apply this verse to our community life? How do we apply it more broadly to being part of the Christian community in St. Andrews, nationally, globally? So let's look at the theme of justice first. The Lord requires of us that we do justice, this verse says. I was having fun in Young Vineyard last week, learning how to wiggle like a worm and waddle like a duck, and it's all relevant to the gospel, trust me, when Joel did his overview of the work of IJM last week. Various current and former students have become involved with this wonderful charity, which seeks to restore just practice in various countries around the world, to introduce it in others, and to help vast numbers of otherwise helpless and powerless people in a variety of ways. Prior to these students getting involved, I had not heard of the International Justice Mission. Now I'm really delighted that the Kingdom Vineyard has developed closer links with IJM. We've given financial gifts to it in the past, and just so you know, we felt it right to give £250, which was most of last week's Sunday offering, to IJM as a continuing commitment to the work they do to extend the Kingdom in the most practical and godly way. So it's a privilege to be a small part of that. As a church, we also support Bethany, which helps the homeless and needy much closer to home right here in Scotland. And we give to local charities such as Home Start, Families First, and the Cosmos Centre. The Cosmos Centre being a wonderful community resource in which we met as a church for two or three years when we first began meeting on Sundays here ten years ago. Two things occur to me about how we as a church do justice. The first is that our involvement with both IJM and with Bethany stem from family connections. IJM through the student involvement, as I mentioned, and Bethany, because members of our church community have worked for the charity, Debs Farley, uh, is Debs here today? No. Um, And her mother-in-law, Geraldine, who came here with her husband, Andrew, for several years, and currently Ian Wilson, who's here with us this morning. The family connection helps. There are literally thousands of worthy charities doing amazing work, all of which need financial support. I'm sure many of you, like me, get at least three or four letters a week asking for money for one thing or another, and I feel really bad when I throw the majority of them straight into the bin. And that's before we consider the internet. I get emails from others, from change.org from 38 Degrees, all of whom want me to sign petitions or give money or show solidarity with those who can't speak for themselves. I've subscribed to Tear Fund, to Compassion and to Open Doors, all astonishingly wonderful Christian charities, and I've probably subscribed to others too. Every single case is valid and important. Every single case rings our hearts but we can end up simply being paralysed by the sheer volume of need out there. Well, the need won't go away. Jesus told us that when he said that the poor would always be with us. We have to learn to pray and to discern and then to decide. So when we know somebody who is directly involved with a certain charity, it just helps to focus. The second thing to say is that obviously we Christians do not have the monopoly on doing justice. On the home front, we as a church have given to charities, Home Start and the Cosmos, for example, because whether or not these organizations openly acknowledge Christ or not, they are still doing the justice as God requires. Wittingly or not, they are doing what those of us who are Christians have no excuse not to do. Of course, there are ways other than financially in which we as a church community can do justice. And in Kingdom Vineyard, that is predominantly through storehouse. And so I commend to you again what what Jason was was saying. Uh, You don't have to go for the whole five hours, by the way, on on the 7th of July. If you can do a part of that, that would be absolutely marvellous. And children like spaghetti hoops and uh, beans with those sausages in them, or at least I did. Um, Storehouse is about so much more than simply feeding the hungry. The longer we're around, being so brilliantly supported by other churches and organizations in St Andrews, the more we can do to extend friendship to the lonely, to promote unity amongst the local churches, and to encourage those who serve, sorry, in those who serve, an outward-looking focus and a heart for the poor. All that from a tin of beans. One of the criticisms levelled at Storehouse when we were seeking to establish it was that we were asking to be taken advantage of and that there would be people benefiting from food parcels who didn't really deserve it. Leaving aside the question of who deserves what for a moment, the critic was in one limited sense right. Sometimes we probably are taken advantage of. But I don't remember the verse in scripture which tells us to assess somebody's worthiness before we give to them. I do remember a wonderful prayer written by St. Ignatius of Loyola, however, which encourages us to give and not to count the cost. So I guess you pay your money and you take your choice. If I'm going to be taken advantage of occasionally, then I can live with that, if the genuine need of the vast majority is at least partially met. As for the undeserving, my Bible says in Romans 3. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Ephesians 2, that it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. None of us is deserving, it would seem. Doing justice and passing judgment are not the same thing. The Lord requires of us that we do the former. It is his job, and his alone, to do the latter. Friday's reading in Oswald Chambers' daily devotional book, My Utmost for His Highest, says this. Stop having a measuring rod for other people. There is always one fact more in every person's case about which we know nothing. I have never met the man I could despair of after discerning what lies in me apart from the grace of God. It said much else besides, all of which was a little too close for comfort for me in the state of mind I was in on Friday. Oswald Chambers is a purveyor of wisdom when you're open to the spirit of God and a profoundly annoying wrist slapper when you're not (laughs) speaking personally. Let me give the final word about doing justice to Benjamin Franklin. Justice, he wrote, will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. To do justice is not optional for the follower of Jesus. So to kindness. In some translations of this verse, the word used is mercy. We are called to love mercy. Given that both kindness and mercy are acquired characteristics of Jesus' followers, I'm happy to concentrate on the one rather than the other for now. They're not quite the same. In the dictionary, the word kind is defined as disposed to do good to others, benevolent. Mercy, interestingly, is defined like this forbearance towards one who is in one's power, a good thing regarded as derived by God, from God, sorry, a forgiving disposition, clemency, compassion for the unfortunate. To me, mercy speaks more about conscious forgiveness of wrong, as we are taught by Jesus to do in the Lord's Prayer, and with which, of course, we can have no argument whatsoever. Kindness, on the other hand, speaks more of an attitude of being, a way in which we behave all the time, as best we can, towards others. And, of course, kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is welcome and active in our lives, these are the fruit we will bear. Love, joy, peace... Forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the marks of identification of a Jesus follower, much like the plumage of particular birds or the characteristics of certain plants. By their fruit, you shall know them, to quote Matthew 7.16. It sometimes seems to me that kindness is the most overlooked fruit of the Spirit and the most trivialized, despite in many ways being arguably the most effective in reaching out to other people. Any one of us who has been on the receiving end of kind words or an unlooked-for act of kindness will know how affirming and encouraging it can be And how much easier it is to open up to someone who both gives you the time of day, listens, and is just kind. When we are kind to people, we value them. And when we're kind to people and value them, we emulate Jesus. Kindness doesn't always mean being nice, though. Some of you will remember a talk Jason gave a couple of years back when, as a mentor in a student dorm in the States, he had to to, take a guy aside and tell him that the reason he had no friends was that he stank, through never washing himself or his clothes. Remembering that quote from Oswald Chambers about there always being one fact more in every person's case about which we know nothing, though, Jason then discovered that this guy had never been taught how to wash his clothes, or really to care for himself. What an extraordinary act of kindness that was, conceivably life-transforming for that young man. Sometimes the greatest kindness we can do one another is to be straight, not cruel. Straight. To speak the truth in love. And I believe that to do that, we have to remember what it feels like when we're On the receiving end of a corrective word, how humiliating and shaming and embarrassing it can be, especially when it's spot on. If we are to love kindness, we really do need to have the imagination and the compassion to walk a mile or two in another's shoes before we sock it to them one more time. That applies as much to acts of corporate kindness in the church as it does to individual ones. How can we love and exercise kindness as a body of believers? We keep a vigilant eye out for visitors and newcomers and welcome them, and we try not to leave it solely to the hosting team, although serving coffee is a great way to do it, incidentally, so do sign up for August. (laughs) We keep an eye open for the lonely and those standing on their own. If someone is distressed in church, we offer to pray for them, and if they say no, we go away and pray for them anyway. But we don't force on them attention they don't want. We remember storehouse. We are courteous to people who serve us in shops. None of this is rocket science. Kindness is all about other people. It's not about us. Kindness is the hallmark of a servant heart. Mark Twain said of kindness that it is the language that the deaf can hear and that the blind can see. Kindness is a universal language. People understand it when they can't understand a single word another person says. To love kindness is not optional for the follower of Jesus. And so to walking humbly with our God. Ah, humility. Always a tough one. The first and most obvious thing to say about walking humbly with your God is that if it, if, 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 it is good enough,
1: if it is good enough for Jesus,
0: it's good enough for us. So let's read the first eight verses of Philippians chapter 2 in the ESV. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This passage has the heading, Christ's example of humility, what struck me first about this is that humility is defined as a decision not to push oneself forward at the expense of others. Humility is not so much so much about negating or debasing of self, as I think it is often held to be, but in this passage at least, a call not to be selfish, to look to the interests of others as well as, not instead of, our own interests. Jesus had an equal status with God. But we read here, not only did he not insist that his status be acknowledged, he actively sought simply to be obedient and to do what he was asked to do to the point of submitting to death. He chose to walk humbly with his God to an extent which I cannot even really imagine. He sought not to understand the will of God so much as to be obedient to it. I think that we in the church sometimes think that we've got God taped. We can do the Lord the disservice of confining his will within our own painfully limited understanding in a way which is pretty much devoid of humility, as far as I can see, and certainly wanting in compassion. Many of us have very clear ideas of what is right and wrong in his eyes. We know what he thinks. We know what he thinks about adultery. We know what he thinks about homosexuality. We know what he thinks about women in leadership. We know what he thinks. Many other Christians think exactly the opposite to us and justify their stand with reference to the same scriptures quite as fervently as we do, but obviously they're just wrong. In the 19th century, many faithful Christians supported slavery because they could justify its existence from Scripture by their way of it. In the 1980s, many evangelical Christians regarded the AIDS epidemic as God's judgment on homosexuals. There may even be some today who see the Orlando shootings in a similar light. I hope not. I hope we see that these are conclusions which can only be drawn by the heart of thinking. Whatever our dearly held views on any number of controversial topics, we do not get to say who's in and who's out, who makes the grade and who doesn't. That is way beyond our pay grade. The bottom line is this. God saw fit to send his son to die on a cross, burdened by our sins, not his because he didn't have any, so that in acknowledging Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, we could then spend and enjoy eternity with God the Father who loved us perfectly prior even to our physical existence, the psalm says. He sent Jesus to die for prostitutes and pimps, for drug addicts, for cheats and liars. He sent Jesus to die for doctors, nurses, academics, and for both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. He sent Jesus to die for parents, for teenagers. He even sent Jesus to die for women who speak in church. He sent Jesus to die for homosexual men and women. He sent Jesus to die for heterosexual men and women and celibate men and women. He sent Jesus to die for anyone and everyone, and then, on top of everything else, he is gracious enough to allow us to choose whether or not we want to go with his plan or to reject it. It's a risk for God. If we say no, he spends an eternity without us. And given that he's loved us forever, I reckon that breaks his heart. But he won't override our decision. So what has all this to do with walking humbly with our God? Does walking humbly mean that we cannot confidently assert what God has done? Does humility involve wondering whether or not we are actually followers of Jesus? Well, no, absolutely not. I found an anonymous quote which sums it up quite nicely. There is a thin line between confidence and arrogance. It's called humility. Confidence smiles and arrogance smirks. We can be confident of God's unfailing love because of Jesus, but it is surely the ultimate arrogance to claim to know the mind of God and to brook no argument. How do we walk humbly with God as a church community? We acknowledge that while we serve him in this particular community of believers, we do not have a monopoly on the truth. We pray for other churches, We delight in their successes and mourn their their hurts and losses. We steadfastly refuse to criticize or find fault with them or to compare them unfavorably to ourselves or to other bodies of believers. We hold fast to what God has called us to do in this tiny corner of his kingdom and faithfully get on with it. We are gracious and forgiving in the face of unwarranted and ill-informed criticism. We remember what John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, said. Your brother is never your enemy. We try to live by that premise. It's a tall order, but it's doable if we rely on the grace of God and humbly acknowledge that without it, we are completely sunk. I have a further favourite verse from which I take great comfort, and it's this. For now... We see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. This is what I take from this verse. Try as we might, study as we may, pray as we should. We simply cannot and will not get the full picture until we are finally in the presence of our God. Not this side of heaven. Some of us may find that frustrating, but for me, it's just a relief. The comedian Milton Jones, himself a lifelong follower of Jesus, has written this. One of the mysteries of Christianity is why Christians rarely admit that so much of it is a mystery. We have to learn to live with that mystery, with a not knowing. Unless and until we do, we will struggle to walk humbly with our God. And walking humbly with our God is not optional for the follower of Jesus. Shall we stand and I'll pray. I mentioned earlier the prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola, and just before we pray for and minister to one another, I'd like to speak it over us as a body. So let's pray together. Teach us, good Lord, to serve you as you deserve, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wounds, to toil and not to seek for rest, to labor and not to ask for any reward save that of knowing that we do your will. Amen.